0: Let's open our Bibles this morning to Jeremiah chapter 7, Old Testament major prophet, the book of Jeremiah, our text this morning, Jeremiah 7, uh, verse 1 through chapter 8, verse 3. The topic, the people of Judah are so deep into their sin that at one point God tells Jeremiah to not even pray for them. And so the title of our message, Don't Pray for Me, Jeremiah. Jeremiah. Father, thank you for your word. We believe that it is uh, inspired and authoritative, Lord. And though it was originally penned about and for the children of Israel in the sixth century, Lord, we know that it's filled with proper application for our lives today in the 21st century. And I pray that, Lord, you would show us those connections. And as we humble ourselves in prayer before you, Lord, inviting you to speak to us that we would understand more of your love and grace and mercy and compassion than we have ever before. And that we would leave this place more like Jesus Christ, more conformed into his image, which is your work in your believers day by day. And Lord, I pray that if there's any here that don't know you, they've never received your offer of the forgiveness of sins from the cross that your spirit would convict them of sin and of righteousness and of the judgment to come that he would do his work his mighty work that the gospel would be the power of God unto salvation for them. We pray these things together in Jesus' name, and those who agreed said, amen. Christians have made popular certain catchy phrases. We're gonna have a little interaction here this morning for a minute. See if you can finish these phrases. I'll give the first part, and then you, if you know it, give the rest. Number one, Christians aren't perfect. Just forgiven, famous bumper sticker. God said it, I believe it. That settles it. Get right or? Get left. Christianity isn't a religion, it's a. Relationship. All right, congratulations. You're saved. No, I'm just kidding. Now, I've often told people Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. And that's true, but it's not complete. You cannot earn or enter into a relationship with God by observing any religion or religious activities. But after you've received the Lord, the Apostle James says there is a pure and undefiled religion. James 1, 26 and 27, if anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. James was, and of course he is, addressing believers. He indicated there was a positive, pure, undefiled religion, and that there was what we might call a poor religion. From a read-through of his entire letter, we can summarize what James meant like this, yours is a poor religion if you are observing outward forms of worship and Christian discipline, but are avoiding doing what is right and are even doing what is wrong by living in sin. Yours is a pure religion if your outward behavior and activities are the genuine result of the control and leading of God. Our text in the book of Jeremiah is an Old Testament example of this same situation. The people of Judah thought themselves very religious, but theirs was a poor and defiled religion rather than a pure and undefiled one. And so maybe we can glean some insight from their failure on how to stay pure in our religion and therefore honor our relationship with the Lord. I'll organize my thoughts then around two points. Number one, there is a poor religion that disgraces your relationship with Jesus. And number two, there is a pure religion that graces your relationship with Jesus. Let's take a look first of all at poor religion. Now as we begin... Scholars call chapter 7 through 10 Jeremiah's temple sermon, and you're going to see why in these opening four verses, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 7, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word. And say, hear the word of the Lord, all you of Judah who enter in at these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your doings, and I will cause you to dwell in this place. Do not trust in these lying words, saying, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. Now, as we've indicated before in our studies, during the reign of King Josiah, the temple at Jerusalem which was Solomon's temple, it was restored. And during the restoration, the book of the law was found and it was read out loud and a sort of revival broke out. Now, I say it was a sort of revival because while the Jews returned to keeping the Sabbath and worshiping in the temple, they did not turn from their worship of idols, nor as we will see, did their everyday morals or ethics become transformed. And so there was an outward form of revival, but it had no real effect on their heart or on their everyday behavior. Instead, they were, as James might have observed, spotted or blemished by the world. Jeremiah was instructed to stand outside the gate of the temple and deliver a scathing sermon as folks came with their offerings. According to verse 29, we'll see, he was instructed to shave his head as well. And so you were coming to the temple, dressed in your Sabbath best, bringing your offering, and here would be Jeremiah standing out there with a shaved head giving this sermon. Some of you have seen people who you just, you know, just crazy street preachers. Maybe you've not seen them in person, but in movies or they depicted in television that, and you think, man, you know, those people are just a little bit off. Jeremiah was one of those people. God told him to do it. He said, go and preach to the people while they're coming in and shave your head while you do it as a sign of shame and dishonor, and these are the words I want you to speak to them. Now, we talked about Christian phrases. The Jews had a phrase, apparently, and it was the temple of the Lord. Whenever they heard a message about God's judgment upon them or had a tinge of inner conviction for sin, they would say the temple of the Lord, meaning that since God's temple was restored and since God dwelt there in the midst, no matter what they did or didn't do, he would defend them for the sake of his own honor. It could be that they would say this to Jeremiah as they walked by, as, as they would, you know, Some of you have undoubtedly been in a situation where you've stopped to listen to one of these street preachers, and if anybody did that here in the sixth century, they might just say to Jeremiah or to each other, oh, the temple of the Lord. Who are you going to believe, Jeremiah with a shaved head, young guy that he is, or the fact that we have this magnificent building in which God dwells? And they were counting on God defending himself, as it were, and they would get away with it. Verse 5, for if you thoroughly amend your ways and your doings, if you thoroughly execute judgment between a man and his neighbor, if you do not oppress the stranger, the fatherless and the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place or walk after other gods to your own hurt, then I will cause you to dwell in this place in the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. The Jews were practicing a poor religion, going through the motions of outward rites and rituals while ignoring the things that mattered most to God. Their treatment of the poor and the oppressed is very reminiscent of what James wrote in his letter to Christians. The Jews had the kind of poor, defiled religion James attacked as hypocrisy. Relationship should result in a pure religion where you are properly representing the compassion of the Lord Uh, towards others. Verse eight, behold, you trust in lying words that cannot profit. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, burn incense to Baal, and walk after other gods whom you do not know? And then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we're delivered to do all these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of thieves in your eyes? Behold, I, even I have seen it, says the Lord. Now God looked at them as if they were a band of thieves who were holed up in their supposedly impregnable stronghold after pulling a job. And so he was looking at them. He says, you want an illustration? You guys are out there like a marauding band of robbers, and then you run back to a stronghold that you think is impregnable. Think hole in the wall in the Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid movie. Only instead of likable scoundrels, uh, the Lord says, these guys are wicked. Or Sherwood Forest, but instead of likable scoundrels like Robin Hood and his merry men, these guys were wicked. Uh, But that was their attitude. They thought they could rob and steal and oppress people, uh, you know, six days during the week and then come into the temple and be delivered from judgment because God dwelt there. Now, the Lord listed just a few of their regular daily behaviors, like stealing and murdering and committing adultery. Now, we may not like to read them, but there are lists of sins in the New Testament as well. Writing to the believers at Corinth, the Apostle Paul said, and this is from 1 Corinthians chapter 6... Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Paul was talking in that passage to believers about unbelievers... He said, such were some of you. But it doesn't mean we're off the hook if we practice those things. We don't get a pass. A few verses later, he says to believers, flee sexual immorality. And so if you read that whole section, Paul assumed they would know it was totally inappropriate for a believer to act the way non-believers do to act the way they used to. He says, hey, here's some things you used to do. You've been delivered from them, not to them. And so make sure that none of these things are spoken of. Your salvation doesn't free you to act the way you used to, the way non-believers do. It frees you to act obediently. Being a Christian doesn't deliver you to sin, it delivers you from sin. None of the behaviors Paul listed or that Jeremiah listed should ever be a part of your relationship with the Lord. Verse 12, but go now to my place which was in Shiloh, where I set my name at the first, and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. And now, because you have done all these uh, works, says the Lord, and I spoke to you, rising up early and speaking, but you did not hear, and I called you, but you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house which is called by my name, in which you trust, and to this place which I have given you and your fathers, I'll do as I have done to Shiloh, and I will cast you out of my sight as I have cast out all your brethren, the whole posterity of Ephraim. God reminded them of a historical precedent. Centuries earlier, about 300 years earlier, the Jews worshipped God at Shiloh. Because of their sin, God allowed the Philistines to destroy Shiloh. The Jews in Judah had no reason to think God wouldn't do the same to the temple At Jerusalem now skip down to verse 20 please therefore thus says the Lord God behold my anger and my fury will be poured out on this place on man and on beast on the trees of the field and on the fruit of the ground and it will burn and not be quenched thus says the Lord of hosts the God of Israel add your burnt offerings to your sacrifices and eat meat I did not speak to your fathers or command them in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt concerning burnt offerings or sacrifices, but this is what I commanded them, saying, Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people, and walk in all the ways that I have commanded you, that it may be well with you. Yet they did not obey or incline their ear, but followed the counsels and dictates of their evil hearts. They went backward and not forward, since the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt until this day... I have even sent to you all my servants, the prophets, daily rising up early and sending them. Yet they did not obey me or incline their ear. They stiffened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. Now, this is God's way of saying he wanted relationship and not a false religion. He didn't ultimately care about burnt offerings or sacrifices. He wanted obedience. Now skip down to verse 32, please. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when it will no more be called Tophet, or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter, for they will bury in Tophet until there is no room. The corpses of this people will be food for the birds of the heaven and for the beasts of the earth, and no one will frighten them away. Then I will cause to cease from the cities of Judah and from the streets of Jerusalem the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride. For the land shall be desolate. Just outside Jerusalem, they had built places of idol worship where orgies were part and parcel of the ceremonies as were the sacrifice of live infants. It would have become a place of slaughter when God brought the armies of the Babylonian Empire to destroy Jerusalem. Now into chapter 8. Verses one through three, at that time says the Lord, they shall bring out the bones of the king of Judah and the bones of its princes and the bones of the priests and the bones of the prophets and the bones of the inhabitants of Jerusalem out of their graves. They shall spread them before the sun and the moon and all the host of heaven, which they have loved and which they have served and after which they have walked, with which they have sought and they have worshiped. They shall not be gathered nor buried, nor shall they be, uh, they shall, excuse me, be like refuse on the face of the earth. Then death shall be chosen rather than life by all the residue of those who remain, of this evil family who remain in all the places where I have driven them, says the Lord of hosts. And so this is a prediction that the Babylonians would desecrate the bones of the deceased, which were kept in bone boxes or what we call uh, ossuaries, Any Jews left alive would wish for death and it seems would choose death, which could uh, indicate suicide. Now remember, all this is being said while the people filed through the temple gate, dressed in their Sabbath best, armed with their offerings and sacrifices to go through the motions of the Jewish religion. If we were one of those churches that, you know, uh, did drama we could I, I was trying to figure out who would have been the perfect person to be outside today to just rebuke people as they were coming in and then I thought yeah that's why we don't do that because that's just lame but uh but seriously I mean it, it would be like this morning if you were coming to church and there was somebody out on the steps saying your worship is worthless you're in sin uh, God is going to destroy this place that's why we have ushers But Jeremiah, this was what he was called to do, and he was a very young man doing this at the same time. So really, really an, uh, interesting is the wrong word for it, but a, uh, an incredible thing is going on here. Now, maybe you find yourself this morning in some area of your life at odds with God. You're here, and that's great, but it has to be more than the outward observance of religion. There must be an obedience from the heart, a true, pure, undefiled religion. And I think when we come and sit under the teaching of God's word, where Jesus has promised in the book of the Revelation that he would be present and we know that the spirit uh, indwells us and is present as well, that God can speak to us about certain things. And so, for example, you could look back on the list of things that we talked about in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10, or the things in Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 9. And some of those things were clear of, you know, one of them mentioned murder, probably I would guess, and and they're they're talking about real murder, not the kind of murder from the heart that Jesus talked about. And I would guess and hope that uh, none of you are currently in the middle of murdering anybody. But there's some other things there that were kind of scary, like uh, fornication, which is just general sexual sin, or covetousness. Don't you hate it when God puts what we consider small sins in a list of things that are really heinous to us? And so the idea is that God says, look, I want want you to bring forth a pure and undefiled religion. I want you to share my love and my compassion and my grace and my mercy with others around you. And if there's something in your life, if there's something in my life that shouldn't be there, It doesn't do me any good to say, well, Lord, I'm the temple of the Lord. You you indwell me. As far as I can tell, theologically, you permanently indwell me in the New Testament. And so, uh, you know, maybe I'm blowing it a little bit in this one area. But generally speaking, I'm doing okay. And the Lord would say, hey, don't say I'm the temple of the Lord. Deal with the situation. And by deal with it, he would say, repent, turn away from it. Do it now while there's time. Because there are always consequences to our sin." Maybe not eternal consequences if we become Christians, but there will be consequences. And after all, we come here and we serve the Lord because we want to make a difference in our world. We want other people to know Christ, don't we? We want our family and our friends who are on their way to a Christless eternity, an eternity separated from God's suffering in hell. We want them to come to know Christ. It's a small sacrifice, to simply be what God has made us and that is a people set free from sin to serve him. And so if there's anything in our lives that shouldn't be there, as Paul the Apostle says, that's what you were. That's what you were. That's not what you are anymore. Don't let those things be spoken of. Now you've been a Christian for a long time. Congratulations, I've been a Christian for a long time. We have a tendency to let down our guard in certain areas and think, well, you know, that was sin for me when I first got saved, but now I can handle it. You hear Jack Nicholson saying, you can't handle the sin, you know, you can't. You can't handle sin. God handled it on the cross. Get it out of your life. Quit coexisting with these things that shouldn't be in your life. Now, there is a pure religion that graces your relationship with Jesus, The verses we skipped, they're really not part of Jeremiah's sermon to the people. It's God speaking to Jeremiah uh, about certain issues while he was talking to the people. It's like God whispering to him, and it's like eavesdropping on something precious that was going on between God and his servant. So let's go back in chapter 7 to verse 16. Therefore, do not pray for these people, nor lift up a cry or prayer for them, nor make intercession to me. I will not hear you. Don't you see what they do in the cities of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood, the fathers kindle the fire, the women knead dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven. And they pour out drink offerings to other gods that may provoke me to anger. Do they provoke me to anger, says the Lord? Do they not provoke themselves to the shame of their own faces?" The thing that jumps out at you, obviously, is don't pray. That's heavy. But let's not go too far with it. Before we say there are times God tells you to not pray for people, let's remember the context in which these comments are found. The context is God giving the Jews time to respond and repent to his pleadings through Jeremiah. We read earlier, he says, look, if you don't repent, I'm going to do this. But if you repent, you can dwell in this land. And so whatever he means by don't pray for them has to be understood in the context of his love for them and of his pleadings to them to repent. Now, I think it's best to understand God was probably telling Jeremiah to quit praying that judgment would be averted. It's reasonable that Jeremiah would pray that way. Uh, he, You know, when God starts telling you, I'm going to judge these people, I'm going to bring the Babylonian army, I'm going to destroy Jerusalem, what's your first prayer? Lord, don't do that. That was Habakkuk's uh, situation. Habakkuk said, "Hey, how, you got to tell me what you're going to do. These people are wicked. They're cruel. They're they're in sin. They need discipline." And God says, "Yeah, I'm going to do something, but I don't. I'm not going to tell you about it because you won't believe it." And he goes, oh, tell me. I can handle it. I'm a I'm a big boy prophet." God says, "Okay, I'm going to bring the Babylon the Chaldeans and destroy them." He goes, "Oh, yeah, no. Please don't do that. How can you do that?" And so I think God's telling Jeremiah, he "says Hey, you, don't pray that this would be averted." And there's maybe a clue to that in verses 16 through 19 because God says, hey, Jeremiah, do you see what they're doing? Do you understand the depth of their sin? They're making cakes for the queen of heaven. These pagan deities, they're teaching their children how to bake cakes for the queen of heaven in their little easy-bake ovens. (laughs) I mean, when you're teaching your children how to sin, think about it for a minute. Those of you who are parents or were parents or have a thought of being a parent, Does it ever enter into your mind? I'm going to teach my children how to sin. Hey, let's make some cakes to the queen of heaven today. Well, what about Jehovah? Yeah, forget about him. These are really cool cakes in the form of a nude goddess. It's ridiculously evil. And so I think God is saying, hey, don't pray for them anymore that I would avert judgment. Doesn't mean you can't pray for them because God still wanted them to what? Turn to Him. So what can we learn from God telling his servant these things? Well, for one thing, there's a sense in which if I'm asked to pray for a non-believer, my prayer ought to be that they would get saved. That's my number one prayer for a non-believer. Not that they would get healed or blessed or anything else, but that they would get saved. One time Jesus was in the house and these four guys were bringing their friend who was paralyzed. They couldn't get in for the crowd. And so they said, we're going to go up and tear off the roof of this house. And they lowered him down uh, in front of Jesus. And Jesus looked at the man and he said, oh, man, what great faith. Your sins are forgiven. Pretty great, huh? Uh, excuse me? I'm paralyzed. Oh, and Jesus said, oh, some of you don't believe I can forgive sins watch this, to show you that I can forgive sins, rise up and walk, and he did. But what was the need? The need was salvation. And so when I pray for a non-believer, that's my concern. When I pray for a believer, my prayer ought to be thy will be done, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. So a lot of times, I mean, you know, we love each other and, you know, somebody will come and say, oh, I have this need or that need or this. Well, the greatest need is for you to just be like Jesus in the situation that you find yourself in. So I'll pray that way for you because I know, I don't know where you're supposed to live and work or go to school or I don't know any of that. I don't even want to know that. I don't know it for myself half the time. So how could I know it for you? But I do know that he who has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Christ Jesus and that you're being changed moment by moment from glory to glory into the image of Jesus Christ and that one day you will awaken his likeness. And so let's figure out how to pray that you could be more like Jesus right now in the situation that you're in. Verse 27, therefore you shall speak all these words to them, they won't obey you. You shall call to them, but they won't answer you. So you shall say to them, this is a nation that does not obey the voice of the Lord, their God, nor receive correction. Truth has perished and has been cut off from their mouth. Cut off your hair and cast it away. Take up a lamentation on the desolate heights. For the Lord has rejected and forsaken the generation of his wrath. For the children of Judah have done evil in my sight, says the Lord. They have set their abominations in the house, which is called by my name, to pollute it. And they have built the high places of Tophet, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command, nor did it come into my heart. Now, in this section here, let's focus on a couple of things going on just between God and Jeremiah. Number one, obviously, Jeremiah called to a very difficult life and ministry and from a very young age. In fact, Jeremiah was promised that his preaching would have no effect on the people. Imagine God coming to you and saying, I have a ministry for you. And here's how it's going to shake out. You're gonna minister for decades and people are going to hate you. No one is going to get saved. There's not going to be any fruit whatsoever in your lifetime of the ministry I've given you. Have at it. Lord, I'm sure that's not you. Who's that? That's the devil. Get behind me, Satan. God wouldn't do that, would he? He did it to Jeremiah. And you know, many a minister and servant of the Lord has taken comfort from Jeremiah uh, and thought, well, you know, things aren't going the way I thought. Hey, this is beyond the way you thought. This is total abject failure. Promised from the, hey, I've got a great promise for you, Jeremiah, you're gonna have the most fruitless ministry of all time. You're gonna write lamentations. Great, great. And so it's very difficult what Jeremiah was called to do. Now, in our life, things don't always go our way or the way we'd like. Things can get pretty rough. We can grow impatient and dissatisfied. We get angry with God. And that's the moment of decision where we have to decide if we're going to fall back into a poor religion or bring forth a religion that's pure and undefiled. Sometimes God, not sometimes, but in each of our lives at some point or another, God's going to withhold something, something that's good. It's not always bad. We're talking about sin and how we shouldn't be drawn to sin, but a lot of times we want what's good. I want to go and do a ministry for you, Lord, and I want to see fruit. I want this to happen or that to happen, whatever it might be, and God withholds it. There's no reason for his withholding it. We, We can't understand it. We pray about it. It's like Abraham and Sarah. We study the life of Abraham. God said, I'm going to give you a son. I'm going to give you a child. And then year after year after year after year after year until they were past the ability to have children. And what did Abraham do? He said, I have my own ideas about how I can have a son. And so I'm going to go off page and, and start going my own way. And that's what we have a tendency to do instead of just waiting on the Lord. God says, our life, our walk, our relationship, it's by faith. Will you simply obey what you know to be true and wait for what is right and good and proper and scriptural? Or are you going to go your own way and then say, well, I'm the temple of the Lord. What are you going to do, Lord? I'm the temple of the Lord. Yes, I went off page. I did my own thing. So what? And more and more, Sadly, that's kind of the attitude that we develop. We're an instantaneous culture, you realize that? My favorite ad right now, it's for, I don't know if it's for Verizon or AT&T, but it's, it's that, you know, where they all have their cell phones and they, they say, ask a question, and go, oh, that's so four seconds ago. And, and, you know, if you've got their network, you've got instantaneous information, And it's it's a funny ad, but it's interesting because we live in that kind of a culture and we we think we are instantaneous Christians as well. And so God says, oh, no, 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 this is a whole potter's wheel thing going on. There's gonna be times when I'm going faster, times I'm going slower, more pressure, less pressure, you're gonna look like an ashtray sometimes and I'm gonna decide I wanna make you a vase or a vase, uh, you know, those kinds of things. And we say, yeah, no, Lord, we're gonna just get off the wheel and and do something else. We're gonna go our own way and that is where a lot of Christians really lose it because we're not patient in waiting on the Lord for what is ultimately his best. We need to grace our relationship with the Lord by holding firm to the pure religion of just obedience. Something else we noted about Jeremiah earlier, he was told to cut off his hair and stand outside the temple gate and preach. Uh, Notwithstanding that baldness in our culture is something to be admired. In their culture, when you shaved your head on purpose, it was a sign of shame or, uh, you know, embarrassment, those kinds of things. And so, Jeremiah, you can't get away from the fact that Jeremiah was called upon to do something really weird, to stand out, to be a freak, to go against the grain, a few years ago, D.C. Talk popularized the title, Jesus Freak. What would people think if they saw that I was a Jesus freak, you know, and, and, and it was, you know, it's like, yeah, I want to be a Jesus freak, but the truth is most of us want to be considered Jesus freaks without having to act or look freaky. We want to be just like everybody else, but have them identify us as Jesus freaks. Now, here's, I've got good news and bad news in this area. You don't have to shave your head or wear a tinfoil hat or, you know, dress crazy or have a van with a loudspeaker on it or you don't have to do any of that stuff to be a Jesus freak. You want to know how to be a Jesus freak today? Simple obedience to God. You can be a Jesus freak in marriage by staying married and by loving your wife the way Christ loved the church and having submission to your husband and what's happening with Christians. They're not staying married. I don't want to be married anymore. Why? My needs aren't being met. I'm not being satisfied. I just don't feel it anymore. I'm not in love. There's a million excuses, but the bottom line is, they're saying, well, I'm the temple of the Lord. I deserve more. I don't want to be a freak. I want to, I want to be somebody else, happier over on the other side. I am not going to go God's way. You can talk to me all day about what the Bible says. doesn't matter I'm the temple of the Lord, and I've made my own decision about marriage and family. And you could apply this to anything, your job, your your friendships. Uh, All you have to do to be a Jesus freak is simply obey God. Because there's a power in simple obedience, because the world is like this. You don't obey God. You're unhappy. God wants you to be happy. Get out of that marriage. Leave that job. Forget the church. You know, whatever it might be, you can have these things right now. I know you want to be a Jesus freak in this sense, and it's, it's good news and it's hard news because it requires a real obedience and a sacrifice. Now, it, it's kind of silly to say that. You know, it's not like you're sacrificing your very life. And I think sometimes we think, man, God, if you ask me to be a martyr, I, I sign on. Let's get it done. But if you want to ask me to be in a marriage that's less than ideal, or to wait to get married to the right person or something like that, come on, who does that anymore? I'll tell you who does it, Jesus freaks do it. And so be a Jesus freak. There's only two people in our story, the Jesus freak and the Jesus fakes. And you want to be the Jesus freak, amen? Amen, let's pray.